Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yorgos Yanakopoulos. In this episode, I am joined by Beatrice de Graaf to discuss her new book, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815. The book is out with Cambridge University Press. Um, I should uh, thank uh, Beatrice for joining us today, and I want to hand it over to her to introduce herself uh, and her work uh, for the benefits of our audience. Thank you so much, Yorgos, for having me today. It's a great pleasure. Uh, my name is indeed Beatrice de Graaf, and I'm um, a distinguished professor at Utrecht University, and I hold the chair of History of the International Relations. And this uh, allows me to do sort of everything I like about history, both uh, early 19th century history, uh, what this book is about, but also more current uh, histories on on terrorism and security. But my favorite historical episode is indeed the early 19th century, because so much happens in that period. Thank you, Beatrice. Uh, You know, your book is about a new history of the system of European collective security set in motion after the aftermath of uh, the Napoleonic defeat. I'd like you to uh, share with us what is it that led you to this uh, project to recover, um, you know, to trade on familiar grounds and and, and, and take a good look at the post-Napoleonic restoration, quote-unquote. Yes, thank you for that question. Well, indeed, uh, there is a long, long, long historiography of this post-Napoleonic period. And there's people who say, uh, like Bosch Schroeder, it was a transformation of international relations and it was a new system of the balance of power. The others, Hobsbawm, for example, who say, no, it was horrible. It was a restoration period of repression, etc. But I came to this period by reading um, a diary of Louisa Adams, And she brought me onto this notion that something else was there as well. In between these two theses, you could say, in between those two theses was the question how people on the ground experienced the situation after 1815. And that's, of course, an impossible question because there were so many people around and where where will you focus lay? But to to take on uh, these memoirs of Louisa Adams, because I think it's a brilliant uh, book. It's written about it. It's called Miss Adams in Winter, A Journey in the Last Days of Napoleon. And let let me very briefly say something about the book, because this really invigorated me to write about this period. It's about a 40-year-old young mother, and I sort of identified with that. I also have, uh, when I started, was also 40 years older bit younger even and I had also young children and she travels with her seven-year-old son she starts on 12th February 1815 sets out from her home in St. Petersburg because she's married to the later president John Quincy Adams who's by then U.S. ambassador to Russia so she starts in St. Petersburg and she takes 40 days to travel from St. Petersburg to Paris and she arrives in Paris on the 23rd of March 1815 and this is exactly the period where Napoleon returns and the whole continent is mired up in troop formations and turmoil turmoil again. And her carriage and herself and her son are also getting mired up in these troop formations that roam the roads. And the question is, for her, how can she make it safely from St. Petersburg to Paris? And this amazing account sort of made me think, what did the end of the Napoleonic Wars meant for security, for 
people. She's not an ordinary people, of course. She's a noble woman. She was of British nobility. But what did it mean on the ground? And if you trace her footsteps, you see that she mentions fortresses and bulwarks. She mentions passports. She mentions a universal payment system. So there's all kinds of things that show that there was some kind of European interaction network, financial networks, security networks. She was helped by various international um, uh, uh, military men because she had the right passports with the right stamps on it. And I thought that this was something that also uh, only came into existence after the Second World War. So this made me think, what was going on on the ground? And that's why I set out to sort of unpack and reconstruct how the war of the Napoleonic Age ended and how this new post-war settlement was constructed in minor details. So not like Schroeder or Hobsbawm in a huge... Um, how do you say, huge designs, huge books that spans the century, but really focusing on what was happening on the ground. And indeed, your book is about, you know, recovering um, what you call the European security culture. And I'll ask you about this in a moment, uh, but doing it uh, through uh, uh, different characters. And, and you gestured to, to a specific case. Um, and uh, at the same time, you're also focusing on the proper... Uh, council meetings and the big protagonists uh, of the period. And I wanted to ask you here um, a bit to, to prod you to, to, to discuss more the kinds of characters that you use to tell this story. You know, uh, what kind of forgotten voices does your book uh, uh, recover? And how do you um, negotiate the balance between characters as, as the character you mentioned earlier and the bigger, you know, political figures at the time that have been well covered in historiography. Yes, uh, that's always the, the fascinating challenge that history poses to us. Do you want to do to narrate this, this big history, this big story, the, 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 the grand ideas of how the world became safe uh, over the centuries? Or do you want to look into detail how that was operated on the ground and what kind of people carried out these mundane practices of re Structing a post-war settlement. And I tried to make a kind of combination. And in between, the vehicle that helped me sort of combine both these grand international schemes for the balance of power, the Concert of Europe, the Congress of Vienna, the likes of Metternich, Tsar Alexander, Wellington, they all figure in my book. But I wanted to connect them with the people that carried out their orders. And as I said in the beginning, who, where did Louisa Adams get her passport from and what did that passport mean and I traced that back and then through various roads I came on to an institution which was called the Allied Council otherwise also the Paris Conference of Ministers or the Conference of Ambassadors it had various names and I found out that there was a council like that that came into existence on the 12th of July 1815 in the aftermath of Waterloo and that the people sitting on that council was Wellington, Metternich, Tsar Alexander himself, but also people like Humboldt, um, von Stein, um, Müffling. Uh, so also second rank officials, ministers, or even officers who were also sitting in the various committees of this council. I thought, what kind of council is this? 
it's, it, it seems like kind of a NATO-like council, a EU-like council. I never heard about this. And I traced my steps through the historiography. And in, in older French literature, one or two books, I found reference to it. And in Matthias Schulz's work, uh, Norm, Norm's, uh, Norman und Praxis, a German book, I also found out, but no one used their archives. And then... I found those archives. Uh, they were numbered, so it's it's the minutes of the Allied Council that met from 12 July 1815 uh, until late 1818, uh, more than 300 times, and all the minutes are kept, but in various archives. Some of them are kept in Paris, others are in the Netherlands or in London. Most of them are kept in the Prussian archives in this this un illegible Prussian current handwriting. It was horrible to read, but. It, it was worthwhile trying to deciphering these archives because I could build a puzzle on the basis of these archives and showcase how this Allied Council that convened in Paris and was the first council of its kind. And later on, there were various more conferences and ministerial uh, conferences like that, for example, in London, on Belgium, on slavery, and many more, and even after 1918 in Versailles. But this is the first one. And all the minutes and most of the attachments are kept. And that was such a rich trove because you could also see how, for example, Wellington felt about uh, the security threat of the French Grand Armée. And he wanted the Grand Armée and the others as well. He wanted the Grand Armée to disband, uh, um, withdraw behind the Loire to the south and uh, install a kind of an occupation system in France. Two-thirds of French territory were occupied by the, by the Allied army of occupation. They couldn't have French soldiers there. But what did that mean in practice? Well, that there would be posts, there would be control houses, there would be barracked uh, uh, Allied soldiers, there would be um, Allied regiments being deployed in the north and in the east of France overseeing this occupation and, for example, the withdrawal of the Grand Armée. How did they do that? And how did they register the people? And how did they make sure that, that people came safe home again? For example, all these soldiers that Louisa Adams describes, how were they um, sent home again, reimbursed to some extent? And this is all kept in these archives of the Allied Council. So the Allied Council is the kind of the... Um, how do you say, the, the, the intermediate platform where these high politics of the balance of power and the low politics of risk management on the ground met. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Thanks for this. And uh, you, know, you also focus on, and, and there's a chapter on your book on this, on, on the cultural climate in Paris during these years of occupation. Uh, and, and, and so it's, you're, you're not only interested in, as it were, the dry diplomatic discussion and, and uh, the kinds of security arrangements, but you're also interested in the in the cultural aspect and the financial aspect of of this story. So I was wondering if you wanted to expand a bit on on you know what you refer to as the cultural climate in Paris during these years where the Allied Council takes place. Yes, uh, thank you. There's, I have to mention here another book written uh, explicitly on the, on the culture in the Paris capital in these uh, months, and that's Christine Haynes. She also wrote a beautiful book on, on the culture in the capital 
during this time of occupation. For me, culture is a kind of a, a broader concept that does not just encompass culture in the sense of music, dance, literature, but culture is also the norms, the attitudes, the habits of the people that interact with each other. So for me, culture is more applied, I also use the word security culture, how people interact with each other, what kind of symbolic arrangements uh, they make. And, and for example, very interesting um, um, arrangement is about the return of looted artwork. This is on the one hand on specific cultural artwork that for example belonged in Brussels or in Amsterdam or in Berlin. On the other hand it's part of this security culture that after the, 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 the second defeat of Napoleon the Allied forces felt that security was not just pushing France back to its ancient limits but it was also um, it had to be enacted in a more thorough way, uh, not just a military defeat, but there was also a need for cultural transformation of the, as they framed it, the character, the nature of the French. We know the French, the Prussians said, and they will never acquiesce uh, and they will, they will be hegemonic again and they will try again. So we need to transform their culture. And how did they do this? Well, they did it by as I said, deploying this system of Allied occupation, but it was not just a military occupation. The Allied forces also um, gave political orders. Uh, they they um, exerted heavy pressure on Louis XVIII to really live up to his new constitution, the Chart. And they also said, well, this is the first time that um, we need to do something about reparations in a systematic way to make the French bleed and to make them feel what they've done to the world. So they need to pay, pay monies, but they also need to pay back what they stole from the various houses, castles, noble houses in, in Europe. They need to return the looted artwork. And um, instead of just having the, 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 the Allied generals get their own hand and in a very unsystematic, anarchistic way rob back what they felt belonged to them. That's how the Prussians wanted to do it. Gneiss and Anglusia, they just wanted to take back what they felt was rightfully theirs. Uh, but the Allied Council said, no, we're going to do stock-taking. We're going to make a list of all these looted artworks. And there will be a specific committee which has to roam the French Museum and has to identify those artworks and they will be returned properly or people will be reimbursed in an, in an orderly fashion. And this was something new. So it was it has to do with, with the culture needs to refer back to, for, this, for example, these famous paintings by um, Rubens that were brought back to Belgium. And before, and this is also a very interesting unforeseen consequence of the Napoleonic era, through these returned looted artworks, people only started to see how rich the culture and the troves of, of um, artwork was of Europe before before Napoleon, uh, the Napoleonic forces and uh, the Louvre took away these artworks. They were invisible to the public. They were kept in dark places, in castles. They had been exposed, exhibited in the Louvre, and now they were returned to, uh, for example, Bruges and, and Belgium. But now they were on display or to Cologne, and they were hailed home as a kind of, of trophies, although they belonged to the countries themselves. And this, this really marked, for example, in, in the Low Countries, the beginnings of, um, uh, how do you say that? A new popularity for the Rubens paintings. So through this Napoleonic upheaval, cultural works of Europe 
also in a quite nationalist sense, I have to say, they were returned home, but they got more status because the French had them before. So this is a very interesting cultural aspect, which also was part of this allied machine, as the allied forces called themselves, the allied machine handling matters in France. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And um, following on from that, on a slightly different angle, um, you also uh, feature in the book, you have in the book a chapter on uh, the financial aspect of this new system that, uh, you know, allied occupation in France and, you know, the post-Napoleonic sort of international system brings forward. And I was wondering uh, if, if you want to share with us a couple of thoughts on, on, on the financial underpinnings of, of the international system that you trace in the book. Yes, this, this is also, I think, um, something that I uh, worked hard for to, to piecemeal together because uh, nothing much has been done on the reparation payments after 1815. There, there's a few financial papers on it, but nothing much on the political value of these, this, this huge system of reparation payments uh, that was put in place after 1815. And it's important to note that compensation reparations as a part of a sortie de guerre, the end of the war, they were not codified in the early 19th century yet. It had been a habit, of course, uh, for the Greeks and the Romans already, plunder imposed tributes. Uh, it's also how Louis XIV financed the quarter of his war chest during the Seven Years' Wars. Uh, so the idea of, of, of roaming the countryside of the country that you occupy and just take what you need. That was quite normal during the time of warfare. Uh, and also Napoleon, of course, had been um, uh, used to impose ruthless levies to the countries that he conquered and occupied. He, he, he plainly milked the Netherlands and the German countries. But that is something different that happened after 1815. Because first of all, it was not just plunder where you go. So the Prussians and the Russians explicitly forbade their officers to take cash when they came into countries that uh, or villages that they occupied or that they, um, that they defeated. They were explicitly prohibited to take their monies. And if they did, people could file complaints. And it's no, not always, but sometimes it would be reimbursed and it was not the right way to go. And when Wellington uh, became chair of this Allied Council and also commander of the Allied Army of Occupation, he made it an, a habit of flogging his men or punishing them if they, they dabbled in plunder. So after 1815, this notion of reparation was not just an instrument of warfare. It was not just a continuation of the chaos of war and uh, the repression of war. It was something else. Of course, the French had to pay according to the Allied forces, not after the first time Napoleon was defeated, then it was concluded and predominantly um, uh, uh, made clear by Tsar Alexander, who in 1814 was the first one who entered the, the French capital. He said, well, we, we come here as magnanimous uh, victors and we will leave the country very soon afterwards and we will restore the peace and we will reconcile ourselves with France. And there was nothing much to pay for France there to the anger of the Prussians and the Dutch and many Brits, for example. In 1815, it was the Brits who were on the deck and who, shared, who dealt the cards, and they said, no, some kind of redress needs to be made. The Prussians handed in a bill for 1.3 uh, 
billion uh, francs that need to be paid back. Um, others, I'm looking now into my my notes because it's it's a very complicated matter. Um, Others said, well, no, we need to divide these indemnities equally. So there's reparations and indemnities. And again, the Allied Council decided to set up a committee, partly uh, composed of, of uh, Allied representatives, also from the smaller countries, the, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, they also could sit in on this committee, partly also uh, composed of French financial officials, who of course try to stall uh, everything and put in uh, obstacles in the way. But in the end, um, there, was a comp- uh, there was indeed a compromise for a huge repayment of 1.2 billion francs and this was more than 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 France France could pay um, out of her coffers. So what needed to be done in order not to restore France back, bring bring France back to chaos and anarchy, or bring it to bankruptcy? So what was done in eighteen sixteen and eighteen seventeen that bankers from the UK, from Great Britain. Uh, particularly the Bering brothers, together with the Hope brothers from Amsterdam, they were asked to pay out loans, huge loans to France. And interestingly, a kind of system of bonds was put in place. It was already done before with uh, the Louisiana Purchase and with other, but those were bilateral bonds. This was a kind of European system of bonds where, first of all, UK and Dutch bankers, but then also French bankers themselves and uh, financial houses from Germany and other uh, German countries and uh, in Europe could participate in these bonds, hand out loans to the French government. De facto, informally, the Allied army of occupation would be the warrant, the guarantee force of the fact that France would pay the rent to these bonds. And in fact, in this way, a kind of circular circular system emerged where France had to pay huge amounts of indemnities and reparations to the Allied forces. It couldn't pay them, but it was handed loans from the bankers of Europe who got bonds instead. And those bonds were bought by the rich citizens of Europe. So there was a whole circular system of securing the peace through monies. A financial system emerged. And this very much also plays into uh, um, Rave Blauvarp's uh, notion eh, of the transformation that after the Napoleonic War, um, the, um, the bourgeoisie, the, the, the moneylenders, but also the people with land and possessions, they profited from this system because the richer classes, not just the noble classes, the richer classes, the bourgeoisie, could pay these bonds. They were quite expensive and thereby they financed European security, guaranteed by the forces of Wellington. So it was actually a quite brilliant system and it worked because within three, four years, France had indeed paid back all of the indemnities and the reparations sooner and also uh, relatively more payments than the Germans managed to do after 1918. But they managed to do so because practically the whole of Europe helped, because they were, they were all in this capitalist settlement. So the security of the post-1815 system was not just a balance of power, it was also a balance of finances, with France paying for her return and the integration into the system, which was a great incentive. And, uh, and and other countries and people profited from it as well.
Thank you navigating us through a complicated story. And indeed, I must say that, you know, it's a, your chapter makes an excellent, shows it in, shows the complexity of, of, of this story in an excellent way. Um, I wanted here, reading your book, one gets the sense, as you indeed mentioned earlier, that, uh, you know, the, that particular moment in time was, uh, as it were, uh, a turning point for different kinds of practices that emerged in the international system. And, and they may be more familiar. You mentioned the post-First World War reparations moment. Another example is the question of interventions and different modalities of interventions that we find across the 19th century. So I guess my question here is, do you stick to your point that I think you're making quite forcefully in the book that that particular moment in time uh, marks the genesis of different sorts of practices that will evolve in the international system until until our very day, indeed. Yes, yes, I think I stick to the point that I made in my book. Uh, I'd like to. Um, and I rely and I draw heavily from Paul Schroeder also, of course, whose magnum opus 1994, The Transformation of European Politics, already stated that uh, those years saw the emergence of a collective security system. And he takes it back from 1763, and it was only finalized in 1848. But for him, 1815 is also a pivotal point, obviously, with the Congress of Vienna. For me, it's not so much the Congress of Vienna as such, because had Napoleon not returned, the Congress of Vienna's treaty could easily have been an empty paper. Because the Chaumont Treaty in 1814, which had many of the uh, premises and the paragraphs that were also concluded in the Vienna Treaty, were not lived up to by France. So it's really the return of Napoleon and then his second defeat and the fact that the Allied forces said, well, it's not just nicely chatting together at the Vienna uh, fireplaces, but we need to be doing something about this. This is also what Friedrich von Gens, Metany secretary, said. He was a scholar of Kant and he had been studying uh, all kinds of, of works on eternal peace, but as Gens rightfully said, the peace needs to be weaponized. It needs to it needs to rest on bayonets. Otherwise, we won't be able to enforce this. And after the second defeat of Napoleon, there was such a widespread notion of trauma in the European countries that had been occupied or had fought Napoleon that uh, they felt that something else needs to be done. And that's why they created this experiment, as I call it, an experiment in collective and institutionalized security management. And it's not just the diplomatic treaties of Vienna, uh, or far more important, the diplomatic treaties of Paris on the 20th of November 1815, the Paris Treaty on the uh, Occupation, but also the Quadruple Alliance Treaty of 20th November uh, 1815, which spelled out that people would not return home after the war, they would keep on working together to maintain and manage the ménagement, it was called, of security in peacetime. So it's not just about peace, it's about security. And security, you could say, is the enactment of peace. It's the management of peace, institutionalized kind of peace management, security management. And this transformed the European situation in, in, the, in the sense that it was no longer the fragmented world of the ancient regime with the cabinet wars, neither was it the late 19th century uh, uh, imperial hegemon hegemonic times, but it was, it was a kind of a situation where the balance of power as an idea, of course, um, uh, was, was put center stage, but the balance of power was acted out was operated as a system of collective security management. 
And for management, you need to have managers. You need to have people who do that. And that was run by the Allied Council. So they run the financial management. They run the the, the construction of a huge fortress system ranging from um, uh, the, the, the canal from Oudenaarde through via mines in Germany through Piedmont. And it was a huge system of fortresses in a time where the fortresses were already almost obsolete. It was a political system, kind of Boulevard de l'Europe, it was called, a bulwark of Europe, of which the Netherlands were also center part. That was done by the Allied uh, Council and also so the, construct, the, the constructing offices, the construction sites were manned by international regiments, which was also really amazing how internationally um, informed this all was. There's this other aspect of security around the borders throughout Europe, the system of passports that was set up. It was um, also enacted and uh, codified by the Allied Council. There were even blacklists of so-called terrorists. And these terrorists were not just the people who voted for the beheading of uh, uh, the, the French king, the terrorist was also, and that's why my book is called Fighting Terror. Um, terror was the trauma of 1815, and tra- terror was a trauma in uh, um, a double sense. It was the genesis phase of terror. On the one hand, it's the state terror, the terror regime of the revolution, and also of the Jacobin, the military regime of Napoleon. Terror was also the non-state activity of... of um, people roaming the country, white terror, red terror, the Carbonari. Uh, of course, for, for a great extent, it was phantom terror, but to a smaller extent, it was really there. And for people traumatized in these Napoleonic wars, fighting terror was paramount. So this transformation of European politics, which Schroeder writes about, was enacted by the Allied Council as a huge, very broad battle in fighting terror on all kinds of places and sites. And that's why I come up, well, there's this, this, this memorandum drafted by Castlereagh and then uh, accorded by the Allied Council, which says we need to demilitarize the French, we need to debonapartize the French so that they won't be as, as striving for hegemonic power, we need to stabilize France so that no more domestic disputes, polarization takes place, and we also need to uh, uh, make sure that they pay us back, the dédommage, they need to make amends which is a financial instrument, but there was also a kind of morality in play here. And I think these, this experiment that was kept in place afterwards, so afterwards, after 1815, 1818, far more other uh, ambassadorial conferences uh, on the basis of the quadruple alliances, new congresses were, were enacted, not just the high congresses of uh, Lopau, um, Leibach and Tropau, but also those small-scale ambassadorial conferences. Military officers worked together from Prussia, the Netherlands, the UK to come up with new measurement systems. Um, uh, there were there were trade-offs of this system in, in um, setting up a Rhine regime a colleague of mine, Joop Schenk, wrote about this. The Allied Council also dispatched um, a committee that had to oversee the joint fight against piracy. And you could even say that the treaty of 1824 between the UK and the Netherlands on the colonies was an element of this settlement. So this transformation, this, this Allied machine, as the Allied Council was mentioned, sparked off all kinds of European corporations, but also all kinds of imperial cooperation because that's the last point that i want to make in this this respect mm-hmm. of course 
colonization already was on the way for, for centuries. But 1815 also sparked off a new round of imperialism. And not in the sense, it has been written before, that, that it was a competition of the larger uh, empires uh, on the seas and in South America. No, it was also cooperation. The, 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 the empires of Europe worked together, first in colonizing France, internal colonization, and then to pacify the Mediterranean, as they called it, colonize North Africa. And they even discussed quite uh, extensively whether they should dispatch a kind of allied army to South America to pacify the new revolutions that are getting on there. And this is where the Brits said, and also the Dutch, no, we won't go, we won't go there. It's up to Spain and Portugal to set their own uh, matters. But the idea was there, that the Allied Council was a kind of a new model of not just competition, but also cooperation. And in 1818, France was invited to join Article 6 of the Quadruple Alliance because it had paid its debt, it paid off its debts, and it would now again be one of the five superpowers. So I do think that this experiment, at least in this first decade, set off all kinds of new modes of cooperation uh, on the seas, on the rivers, in economics, in financial matters, which have been overlooked, I think, in, in these details. Thank you, Beatrice. Lots to unpack there. I should mention in passing for, for our listeners that your book has a wonderful chapter on the completion of the Wellington barrier. You mentioned it earlier when you were talking about the different kinds of fortifications. And uh, I think you also make a convincing case about the need to study you know, uh, consuls, ambassadors, uh, people on the spot that are enacting this kind of security can, uh, uh, culture and even the legacies of the security culture when we move up uh, on, uh, uh, in the 19th and 20th century and we look at interventions in different places, inter-imperial interventions in different parts of the world. Um, I want now to um, get you to probe a bit on uh, right when we, what, when we left, where you left it with your answer, uh, you refer to three pillars of security, of the security culture of the period. Uh, Inter-imperial cooperation, you mentioned this. Then uh, you speak about moral dedication and optimism. Do you, do you mind elaborating a bit on these other two pillars of that constitute uh, the uh, security culture that you reconstruct? Yes, thank you. Well, it was optimism, but it was optimism um, um, inspired by a huge collective trauma. It was optimism in the sense that people felt that we can't ever have anything similar like to the terror that Napoleon waged uh, over the world. The idea that, that a new hegemon would again rule and usurp all those countries, that again there would be so much blood, sp uh, blood spilled and spoiled of so many men and people, not just soldiers, but also ordinary citizens in Europe and elsewhere. And Alexander Mika Beric, he, he, made the, he makes this this point brilliantly in his book The Napoleonic Wars. And his last chapter is also on the legacy where his work overlaps with mine. And he also says, well, this was such trauma, people felt never again such a terror regime should be um, placed to rule Europe or the world. And in order to um, prevent that from happening, we need to work together. So this optimism of cooperating with each other, of these empires, was very much inspired by fear. It was also very much inspired by 
imperial notions. I made a point before, so I, I wanted to stress that I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of those nice uh, post-1815 restorative regimes. It's not the restoration because this was something totally new. Neither was it, of course, democratic, inclusive, etc. Not at all. It was very hierarchical. In fact, within the Quadruple Alliance, it's, it's just the four uh, powers, Prussia, Russia, uh, Austria and the UK and, and, and Britain, and then only in 1818, uh, 19, France is invited to um, uh, join only one article of the treaty, so it's five, and they call themselves the first rank powers, and there's the second tier powers, that's for example Piedmont, uh, Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, but also the Netherlands, and then there's the third rank powers, and they don't even count. They can easily be wiped off the map, for example, in Vienna and also later. So it's it's highly imperial, this optimism. And if we as empires stick together, we can make things work. And uh, in that optimism, there's also included a huge sense of, of course, uh, authoritarian thinking. And the minorities of Europe... Um, uh, were very much oppressed. They were not part of this settlement. The Poles, uh, uh, parts of the Saxons, uh, they were not included in the deliberations. Neither were, for example, in, in my country, the Belgians. Uh, not many of the Belgians wanted to be part of the, the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and they revolted in 1830, and successfully so. So it was a settlement that was not that stable as the imperial powers liked. But to come back to your question... There was this element, and I think it's important to stress the fact that for the Allied powers um, in charge, the only answer to the trauma of terror was moderation. And the word balance of power has been taken as a kind of a realist power denomination category. But if you look up the notion balance of power in the dictionaries of the time, in the German dictionaries, uh, uh, um, the Brockhaus, or in the, the Encyclopedia Britannica that came out in 1816, that edition, you'll find that this notion of the balance is, is very much infused and informed by emotional language. So culture also entails for me bringing in the emotions of the time, the emotives. And not to say that people all felt similar or alike. Uh, Rosenwein uh, already have, have contributed heavily to the emotional turn in history, but these this emotive of moderation was very much part of this post-1815 culture. It's how uh, Sir Walter Scott wrote his Waverley uh, about the evil passions of people fighting each other. They need to brought back to peaceful habits. Uh, or Jane Austen with a sense of sensibility. Also, those so Dutch and French and uh, even German texts, they all advocate moderation. And that's a kind of peace and complacency, um, a kind of... of well, a reconciliation efforts towards each other instead of going after uh, idealistic, passionate, revolutionary or military adventures. And obviously, I mean, this did not keep the imperial powers from launching the interventions on their part. But in Europe, this was very much part and parcel of the new discourse, moderation, balance, uh, uh, and, and it, it had concrete meanings as well. I mean, the Prussians, they wanted to rob France from far more, and they wanted to plunder the area that they that they occupied, and they were kept from doing so. So they were they were withdrawn. They couldn't. They were not allowed to do so by the Russians and the Brits, for example. So it had consequences in practice as well. Thanks, indeed. Uh, your book makes a convincing case case 
on how to understand the concept of balance of power in a more creative way and in uh, in a less anachron- anachronistic fashion. And as we're moving towards the end of this podcast, I'd like to uh, uh, you know mention a, a sentence from 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 the opening of your book that that stuck with me. You you, you note that a journey into the nineteenth century requires suitable luggage, especially if one is a child of the twentieth century and departs. From the twenty-first, and uh, I, I use this, uh, you know, uh, I borrow these lines from your, uh, from the opening of your book to ask you a final question about, you know, the big concepts that that drive your narrative. You know, the the you mentioned it a bit earlier, uh, the concept of terror, the war on terror. Uh, you know, your, your prose at times seems uh, quite uh, in in sync with with contemporary debates. The concept of security. Uh, and I just wanted uh, to ask if you if you were willing to reflect a bit on the use of these of these uh, big concepts that you're making in in the book and their contemporary resonances. Yes, um, well, this is a very good question because when I found these archives of the Allied Council and started to decipher them, I found so many references to words of security, sécurité, sicherheit also to terror, terrorists, anti-terror. And I was quite puzzled because I knew that these words are very much en vogue today, in the 20th century, 21st century war on terror. But for example, if you if you look at how this memorandum of Castlereagh was structured to fight off the terror in France, it uses all those kinds of words that, that are still being used today. Another, another example, there, there was a treaty which was at that point called the Vienna Treaty of March 1850. The treaty was concluded right after the return of Napoleon, the first days, and uh, and it was sort of the foundation for the Seventh Coalition. And it was called the Treaty for Mutual and Collective Security. So it was already there, and it meant very much, well, of course, under other uh, pretexts in another context, but it meant very much that what NATO still does today, working together, concluding an allied um, community and an allied um, alliance to fend off external enemies, but not just external enemies, also internal enemies. And it was also highly normative informed. It went against the passions of the revolution and it supported this notion of moderation, but also the notion of hierarchy. There are four powers that uh, that, that call the shots in Europe, and it's it, it's sort of still the same with NATO and also with the Security Council. It's still there's still this implicit hierarchy, although it's no longer recognized as such, but it's there in practice. So there was so much that came out of these archives that 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 almost um, startled me because I at first I thought, well, these are so anachronistic, or I'm reading them anachronistically, but that's not true. It, the words were used at that time themselves, and I of course cross-checked it with all kinds of other archives and uh, it came back many times. So I thought this also, sometimes political scientists can be very short-sighted and they only study what in their eyes is new. The war on terror is a unique situation. Terrorism is completely new. Uh, How new is the new terrorism? But historians also can be sometimes a little bit short-sighted because they may stress too heavily that the past is a completely different country. You cannot draw inferences from the 19th century to today and there's no long lines and, uh, and that's equally short-sighted because 
there are those lines to be traced back. There is a genealogy of imperialism, of terrorism, of security that go back to the, Napole- to the Napoleonic age. And I try to stay as close to the sources as I could. I cite the sources. I cite how the people themselves felt about terror and described the terror. So that sort of helps me from um, averting the danger of falling into the pitfall of anachronism. But it is there. And uh, perhaps my, 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 my study both of terrorism today and of 19th century work helps me to see these parallels. And I think there's also something that we as historians can bring into the current day debates. So it's not just that the current day debates help us. Because if I hadn't d- done work on the NATO or on strategic narratives today, I would not have been able to sort of surmise, because before I knew that the Allied Council was there, I had already this hunch that something must have been in place to manage the Quadruple Alliance, to manage the Allied Army of Occupation. It's not just that people go out there and occupy a country. They discuss this amongst themselves. The Seventh Coalition consisted of so many uh, politi- political entities. They needed to have... Um, a platform of deliberation, as Jennifer Mitson calls it. So I went looking for that platform of deliberation and found it. And it's 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 there. It's really there. And once you see it, you see it everywhere in all kinds of archives. But people have uh, in the in the 19th century historians that that worked and lived in the 19th century, but also those who lived in the 20th century, they have oftentimes written in a very strict nationalistic historiographical tradition. So the French have written about the regime de restauration in France. They have not written anything about the Allied occupation because that didn't fit into the historiographical frames. If you look at uh, the post-1815 history in in Germany, it's very much on the liberation wars of Germany and on Humboldt, Hardenberg, Stein, not on their international. If you read the biographies on these German state leaders, you'll find hardly anything about their important contribution to this European system. Similar for Britain, if you go to the TNA and you look into the British archives, it's all Wellington and the Brits. And well, only if you look deeper, you'll find these sources of the Allied Council. So see what I mean? It's important to also bring back these notions of European collective security to the early 19th century. And you see that there were far more European collaborations in place at that time than we may now expect them to be. For example, there was an 1840s, there was a European committee to wage the war in Syria and restore peace in Syria, which was presided by France, but it involved very much also the other powers. So there were far more of these European corporations in place functioning through cooperation rather than through competition. There was competition, obviously, but sometimes keep your enemies close and work together (laughs) is the better venue than, than do it on your own. And uh, that's why I think that this this early 19th century still has enough surprises for us to rediscover. Thank you, Beatrice. You put it so eloquently in the end. I don't really have anything further to add. Uh, I just wanted to ask you uh, where you see as as a means of signing this off. Where do you see your research involving? What what kinds of research projects are you pursuing at the moment? And you know, as you're leaving this oh, book that's... behind you. That's a nice question. It's it's the best moment if you just finish the book and you can sort of, in your head, invent all kinds of new books and you don't have immediately start to write them again. That's the best moment uh, for a historian to live in, I think. 
design books in your head and not actually having to work through them. So in my head, I am now designing all these beautiful books on uh, the uh, continuation of this allied security culture in the 1820s and the 1830s because those decades also are quite overlooked, I think. And uh, you know everything about the Jorgos, about the Greek uh, uprisings and the revolution. This was also something that was encountered by a European cooperative system. And uh, another book that I could write is something on how the notion of security evolved further in, in those years. I mean, I know that all kinds of people, and, and Chris Clark is one of my historical heroes, he works on the book of 1848, but 1830 is also a kind of a turning point where I think this system of collective security still works, but is overlapped by more nationalist tendencies. And what happens then? And how did people, again, on the ground in these conferences see this evolving? So these are the ideas that I have. Lots of fascinating ideas. And I have to say here that your book, reading your book, one uh, starts designing their own, uh, formulating their own very uh, important questions about, as you said, periods uh, in history that have been somewhat studied, but nonetheless overlooked. Um, Beatrice de Graaf, thank you very much for this discussion. The book is called uh, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815, and it's out with Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much, Yorgos, for this this discussion and this opportunity.